Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, welcome to Earth News Interviews. My name is Dean. I'm joined with my co-host, Sophia. Hey, yo. And today's guest is Dr. Charlie Bank. Hi, Dean. Hi, Sophia. Hey. So, how was everyone's week? Oh, uh, you know, my week started off with a lot of uh, a lot of data processing. I'm doing a little bit of work for uh, for my thesis project right now, so pretty much doing that, staying inside because it's so hot. Yeah, I don't I don't go out until the sun's down. It's so hot out. My dog appreciates that too. He has a winter coat still. So, how about you, Charlie? That's good. I actually go out early in the morning when it's still fresh to get a little jog in, and um, I've been working like finalizing a manuscript that colleague Kennedy and I are working on. Um, there's all these meetings that people like, it seems like there's a lot of meetings these days because it's so easy now with <laughs> being online and, um, and starting to think about fall, how to prepare for my fall courses that have to be going online. So what courses are you teaching in the fall? I would think the two geophysics, the intergeophysics, the advanced geophysics, and then the geology and public issues, the distribution course. Oh, oh okay. cool. Yeah, I, I know you from geophysics, and I didn't have you for uh, deep earth history, but I know you teach that as well, a lot of uh, stuff dealing with extinctions and stuff. Uh, what What kind of projects have you worked on in your career in academia? What kind of subjects have you explored? A bit of a range. Um, I like as an undergrad, I was always keen on getting outside, and I remember like one large seismic project that I was helping with that um, did the cr cross the the Rhine Valley. Um, in my graduate work, I worked with actually deep earth seismology, so I did that when I was at at UBC really fascinating. And then once I started teaching, I got into the um, near surface stuff. And um, that has allowed me to travel a lot with my students to yeah, several interesting countries, Peru, Turkey, Greece, British Columbia, the Yukon, Mexico was, was good. Have you ever had any like crazy travel experience to any of those countries? Like, you know, stories? there's always always interesting stuff, probably the most interesting one was um, in terms of being crazy was when I traveled with 29 students to Chile. That was actually the very first of these international trips that the department did. And we had we were visiting a, an alumni. She did her undergrad here and at the time was a master's student in, in Santiago at the University of Chile. And um, Fernanda, and, and that was really cool. So she basically invited us. She was our guide there. Um, but the, the issue was with the flights, we were like on all on different flights. And some people had never traveled before. And some were international students and flights, so they couldn't be routed through the U.S. And so we, it was like pretty crazy. And then coming back, a bunch of us flew via uh, Miami, now you can imagine after a week of being in the field that, um, yeah, we were kind of pulled out, right? Because there's like all these young people coming from South America into the U.S. 
clearly there must be some drugs, right? So they were just pulled out. Oh, and, and then one of the students had actually lost his passport. So his passport was still on the plane, but the plane already was locked. So we got back, we tried to get in. And then that triggered some alarms. So there was like two people with oh, machine no. guns, like security guys with machine guns that, that ran up. And then, but we then got someone to go into the plane and luckily they found the passport. So that was, that was really um, stressful, right? Because what do you do if you lose your passport when you're abroad traveling in transit? So, so that oh, was, I can't imagine. that was kind of a bit nerve wracking. And that was like at six o'clock in the morning too. Right. So, yeah. The perils of uh, the earth sciences and lots of global travel. Uh, what, what do you think, what got you into the, the earth sciences and in general, like what, what was there like a class or maybe a field course or something? No, it was actually earlier than that. It was pretty much at birth already in a way. My, both my mom's and my dad's family had been involved in the gemstone trade. And my, my, German, my German grandfather and my Brazilian grandfather, they had met um, because they were both dealing with gemstones. And my dad had actually studied geology after, after the war and had a, had a PhD in geosciences. And um, we were one of those families, like the, my dad's car had the rock hammer beneath the passenger seat, right? And anywhere where he would drive past somewhere and say, oh, this looks interesting, we would stop and check it out. So it was kind of not surprising, I guess, that I then went into studying geology at first. And then I had, uh, after two years, I did an exchange year in Edinburgh. And that's when I learned about geophysics. And that's how I then switched into, into geophysics. Ah, oh, that's, that's super interesting. I think that's pretty rare for for geologists, at least from, from what I know, to, to start being interested in it from birth. Like that's, that's definitely some, like an experience that not many people can relate with, I think. Yeah. Mind you, a lot of small kids will, or, or kids will, will collect rocks and minerals and, and shells and whatnot that they found, find, right? And mm -hmm. it's something that um, maybe our school system kind of gets out of our system that we no longer do that and a lot of students just don't know about earth sciences and that it's interesting and that it combines different sciences and and also humanities so mm -hmm. it's kind of um they have to then refine it right i mean i've every year i meet some students who say well i wish i had known about this before but now i'm already in my third or fourth year and there's no point of me switching subjects Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really unfortunate because I mean, this is a really rich science. And actually, that's why uh, Dean and I wanted to pick your brain a little bit because we, we heard that you're really interested in these big extinction events. Now, there's been five major ones throughout Earth's history, but the most recent one, uh, the one that killed all the dinosaurs 66 million years ago at the end of the Cretaceous, that's kind of been a, a controversial one. So from my understanding, there's these two sides. There's a side that's that's for the gradualism theory where dinosaurs eventually went extinct. And then there's this asteroid impact hypothesis where with one fell swoop, uh, the dinosaurs went extinct. So I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a background on this debate and what, what actually ignited this debate. Yeah, so theory of evolution tells us that species will will arrive they will thrive 
and they will they will go extinct. So there's a background extinction level that's happening all the time. Um, but then there's these certain, you mentioned the five big ones where there was suddenly a lot of animals, plants went extinct and life completely changed. So, so th there was then a small stock that kind of survived it and from that new life forms could, could radiate. And the one, as you say, that, that kind of we seem to be most fascinated by is that one 66 million years ago because we are so fascinated with dinosaurs. But mind you, the extinction event didn't just affect the dinosaurs. There was like, like the ammonites, for example, in the oceans, right? That, so there was a, a lot of life forms that went extinct. And, and some things survived. Like, for example, if, if you think of the dinosaurs, well, the birds that are very close relatives to dinosaurs, they made it through. Small mammals made it through, and they then evolved, and, and that's how, how we came came to be. <laughs> Hooray! And and I think one of the reasons that we're trying to understand well what causes these these mass extinctions, because we realize that actually mass extinction is happening right now, and that's one that's um, that's that is in, in big part caused by by our own activities and the us humans being a, a geologic agent at this time and age. So I wonder, because because you mentioned that there's this uncertainty since there's an extinction event going on right now and what our responsibility is uh, in concerns with that extinction, I wonder if that previous extinction, the, the most recent one that we've had, can give us some information on what's currently happening right now. Yeah, because I think that's when obviously there were no humans, so there was no human influence on that extinction. And so if we understand how fast that extinction happened, that gives us an understanding of, okay, what has the Earth experienced in the, in the past? And um, are we seeing kind of the same rates now? Or is it, it seems that it's actually much, much faster in terms of, for example, how the fast the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is, is increasing. And, um, and it also tells us that, well, our planet survived, right? You often hear people say that we're killing off the planet. I, I don't think as humans we have that power to kill off the planet. The planet has survived um, major mass extinction events, major cataclysmic um, happenings. But now there's something that, well, we evolved at a certain time in a certain setting that, that our planet has provided with us, and we are changing that setting. So can we as a human race actually survive survive that? Right. We, we and, a, and a number of other species really like how things are right now in our, in our occasional ice age, but pretty, pretty nice, balanced time we're in. But so that this, the KPG extinction event, so you have like these two different potential hypotheses fighting, whether it's a really quick change all at once with a, with an asteroid impact and whether there's the, the uh, hypothesis where it's just like volcanism that's just constantly spewing carbon dioxide into the air, among other things, and killing off at still a pretty fast rate, but not as fast as, as an asteroid, obviously. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, that, that's why I think this this paper has you know some insights into that. Yeah, and, and even some 
some very recent papers have also talked to that, especially that um, argument of was it an impact or was it the volcanism? And, and to me, it seems that the scientific community is more leaning towards the impact at this point. Well, it's interesting that you say that because actually the paper that we selected for for this particular episode uh, is is possibly the nail in the coffin for this uh, for the gradualism theory because it's just has so much evidence that's supportive for the asteroid mm -hmm. impact event. And uh, yeah, De Dean, do you want to walk us through that that paper summary? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I actually want to do this summary like kind of in two steps. First, I want to describe the deposit what you would see if you go there in this in this layer. And then I'm going to tell you what the reconstructed series of events is that has been hypothesized by this team of scientists that resulted in this deposit. Personally, I think that it is pretty amazing how how much can be deduced with the right background knowledge and these scientific techniques at your disposal. It, it just doesn't seem like a lot is there, but we deduce so much from it. We're, we're I, I like to think about how much we're standing on the shoulders of giants in times like this. So, uh, so the site, it's called Tanis, and it was discovered by, well, it wasn't discovered by Robert De Palma, but he's, he's found this to be the significance of this site. Uh, he named it Tanis after uh, an ancient Egyptian city from which was featured in Raiders of the Lost Ark, I guess. He's a grad student, and he was just kind of poking around there. People had found some fossils and whatnot, and so he found he took interest in the site. Tanis is in North Dakota, and it's believed to have been something like a river valley 66 million years ago, probably had meandering rivers, which would seasonally flood. And it's the deposit itself is 1.3 meters thick. And it has all kinds of well-preserved fossilized life. We have fish, vegetation, and dinosaur bones. And so all these, all these fossils really point to a massive, quick burial, especially being so well-preserved. And what it also, what what was also found in this special deposit are millions of blobs of glass. Most of them are really small. Like you have to look at them with a hand lens, small. Uh, so that's what's in the deposit. Now here's the proposed reconstruction of events. So let's start with these small glassy blob things. They're called tektites. And it turns out they're related to asteroid impacts, right, Charlie? Yeah, that's correct. So basically the, the impact, because it creates so much pressure and heat, it melts the rock. And 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 that's just ejected out of the of the crater, and these droplets fly through the air. They freeze and just fall fall down again. So that's it's like a typical feature that you associate with large impacts. Right. So these these particular tektites were dated to sixty five point eight million years ago, which is alarmingly, right next to the time of the KPG impact. And on further inspection, these tektites seem to be especially caught up in the gills of the fossilized fish that were, that were preserved in this deposit, which, by the way, all died with their mouths open, gasping for breath. 
which is something sad. So sad. Yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it, it seems like these tectites were falling into the water and these fish were, were breathing them in and they were clogging up their gills or at least getting caught in their gills um, before they died. So what caused this chaotic quick burial and what preserved all these fossils? The scientists initially were like, hmm, if you got these tectites, these micro tectites that are dated to the time of impact, well, it sounds like it could be related to the asteroid impact. So what if it was a mega tsunami that was generated from the impact? And so the mega tsunami was supposed to have been 100 meters high when it reached the shore of the Gulf and, and the around the, all the areas around there. Uh, the impact, it was in off the coast of Yucatan Peninsula, I think, in Mexico. But the, the waves oh at the site, the Tanis site, were about 10 meters high. But it's all the way in North Dakota. So it seems unlikely that this 100 meter high wave would reach all the way to North Dakota and still have these 10 meter high waves. So mind you, there was that the coastline was not where it is today, okay. right? So there was actually a connection from the Gulf of Mexico all the way to the Arctic. We call that the Western Interior Seaway. Mm. So basically stretching all along the, the east side of the, of the Cordillera. Okay, where, where was that and, in the um, continent? So, all the, I mean, that's why we have like dinosaurs, for example, in, in Alberta, right? Because that, that area was flooded at the time. So the coastline wasn't wasn't that that f far away, um, but I think the the researchers are still puzzled because it takes a while for tsunami to travel all the way from the the southern Gulf from like the Mexican coast there, all the way to um, to North Dakota. Right, the, the timing's way off. The tectites would have would have reached Tanis like minutes after impact, but this tsunami would have arrived much later a few hours yeah and the tectites would have only fallen for like like an hour i think they said uh and so they would have already fallen they wouldn't be in this tsunami induced event so the uh, yeah the sedimentologist uh jan smith and the geophysicist mark richards were pondering this conundrum and one of them suggested that perhaps the 10 meter rise in sea level or water level, I should say, could be explained by seish waves. Uh, can you explain what seish waves are, Charlie? Yeah, so the way I understand it is that the seish waves are triggered by earthquakes. So, I mean, obviously, if you have a big meteorite slamming into the earth, that will set off a big earthquake. So these, these earthquake waves, they travel, and they would travel within a few minutes from the impact site, which actually also was was underwater, so the the the, the meteorite actually hit a shallow ocean area, and um, and slammed into the the limestone there, and um, and so that would trigger, obviously the the material that's being ejected and these tectites that travel through the air, it would trigger the tsunami that travels through the water and then sloshes onto land and it would trigger the earthquakes and these earthquakes they are able to basically shake any water body 
And so if there was like a river, if there was a lake, that would have shaken and that would have um, created a wave within that water body. Yeah, I've seen, they, they had an example of, of these seiche waves in action where the 2011 uh, Tohoku earthquake near Japan, it triggered... Yeah, the one that caused the meltdown of the Fukushima yeah. plant, right? It was, it's said to have triggered 1.5 mm-hmm. meter tall seiche waves in Norwegian fjords 8,000 kilometers yeah. away. Yeah, it's um, it basically, if you hit a certain resonance, right, it's kind of like, like a musical instrument where you have, where you have resonances. So um, it, it just amplifies then at certain locations. So it's not, okay, so yeah, it's, it's not like causing all water bodies along the way to have these super high seiche waves. It's, it's certain areas where like the waves kind of connect or amplify or create just the right back and forth of the water. Probably. And probably if you have like, say, a long water body, then you might also get larger waves at the edges, right? Than if it's a small one. Mm. Kind of like, like I think I had the other day, I was watering the plants on my balcony and gave way too much to my little apple tree. And then the little, the little bowl I had at the bottom was full with water. And then I tried to move that and I couldn't actually even get it to another pot before it emptied out, right? Because it's, it, because it's so ba- imbalanced. Right. It's a little fun experiment to do with the kids. <laughs> yeah. But the one thing I wanted to add though to this is what puzzles me a little bit is that still this century would have been long enough that it would bring in um, animals that lived in, in salt water, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I'm like, I, I can see, I think their main argument is that the tectites cannot be long enough in the air so that the tectites and the waves, the water waves have met the same time. And so that's why they say it, it can't be the tsunami. Um, now, I'm not sure if that is, would be possible if you had, say, the tectites actually travel around the earth. That would take longer, mm-hmm. right? And then you still would have, and then you, at that point, you could have tectites and um, the waves at the same time. It's probably unlikely, and they probably thought about that too. And so, but there might still be both that there could be the sedges, but also then later a tsunami a few hours later. Right. Right. I mean, so then it's not such a preposterous thing to to hypothesize that these things have happened at the same time because there's this phenomenon of sage waves. Yeah. Hmm. And I think that there must be in the sediments, right? The, that they see the sediments that the tectites have fallen at the time when the sediments were re- being rearranged. Right. And the, 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 maybe like the, the density of the tectites in the, in the layers as they're deposited probably correlates to the time after the impact too, potentially. Um, okay, so yeah, let's describe the impact itself, uh, just to kind of reconstruct the events. The asteroid hits off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. The asteroid was about 10 kilometers wide, I think. Uh, so for Torontonians, that's the distance from High Park on Keel Street to Greektown on Pape. It's like the entire size of Toronto, bigger than downtown Toronto. And... It gouges a 30-kilometer deep crater, throws about 25 trillion tons of debris into the atmosphere, and I'm imagining low Earth orbit, 
as Charlie was saying. And crust rebounded. It briefly rose higher than Mount Everest, which is about, I think, nine kilometers high. And then it collapsed again. So it's like what water does when you drop a stone into a pond. You have all these multiple waves of energy shooting out in different directions. The water is moving this way and that. A lot of the crust, I imagine, was like liquefied or vaporized in this huge tumultuous event. So glad we weren't here to see this. Yeah, it would have been a tough day. Yeah, I, I forget how far away, but it said like some like there's like this radius where everything just ignited. Like there's some radius around impact where everything just immediately combusted. <laughs> I think yeah. on the other side of the globe too, just because of the of the uh, like noxious air that was caused because of like the carbon dioxide emissions, all the all the dust particles just yeah. and, and the shock wave that this like in the air that this create right yeah like you have this huge impact you have the shock wave you have the tectites that are that are hot right i mean they are molten through the air they they freeze in the air but they're still super hot when they arrive on the ground so there would have been massive wildfires in north america and probably further afield so yeah so these these huge seismic waves are generated by the impact 3,000 kilometers south of Tanis, and they are estimated to have reached the river valley around 6, 10, and 13 minutes after impact, creating these seish waves. So it's causing like this period of time between waves where you have all this water and sediment rolling back and forth and back and forth, and every time you you have this, this huge wave it's depositing more sediment more buried organisms fish and tectites along with it and the tectites are just falling into this turbulent situation and getting stuck in the gills of the fish that are trying to survive it and i think what's really cool too is at the end of this the top two centimeters of the deposit there's a large increase in iridium recorded which is something connected to asteroids right yeah, so the, the iridium, that was the kind of the first people that, that suggested that this, at the time it was called the KT boundary, right? That this, and, and it knew it was linked to, the, to that mass extinction. But that was the first evidence that pointed that it would be an asteroid because iridium is not an element that's very common on Earth. And um, yes, you could have, if there was enough iridium, in the rock that the asteroid slammed into, it could then settle out, but our rocks don't have that much iridium, but it's known that asteroids have it. So, um, so that iridium layer that was found in the early 1980s in Italy by the Alvarez father and son team. And so they proposed that. And then after that, people realized that, yeah, there is this clay-rich layer with, with iridium um, at other sites on our planet too. So then, Charlie, would you say that this, the, the outcrop that's presented in this paper and that was found by De Palma, would you say that this is the best piece of evidence you would say for the asteroid impact theory? If it proves true. Yeah, it, it seems like an amazing site. I mean, I think at this point it will be important for other researchers to be able to go there and look at the evidence themselves. But to have like a deposit that's a few meters thick and basically um, was deposited within a few hours of such an impact. I mean, that's a huge thing, right? 
And I think the other big thing there too is that they um, that they claim that there is some um, dinosaur fossil, and not just a dinosaur fossil that say could have been washed out of some other sediment, so being already thousands of million years old, but that this was some um, fossil that derived from a carcass that was floating on the water. So, so an animal that would have lived at the time. Right. So prior to this, you have like this thing called the three meter problem where I think like dinosaurs haven't been found within three meters prior to the impact layer. Yeah, that's, that's what I hear. So, I mean, there could be a simple reason for that is that it's very difficult to fossilize a dinosaur and there wouldn't be that many dinosaurs around at any given time anyways. So it could just be a matter of luck that, yeah, with a few years more of searching that we might find dinosaurs closer to that. But it, but this seems to be the one spot where they actually have evidence for a dinosaur bone at exactly that time, right? So this seems to be the three meter problem is kind of the main argument that the other side, uh, or I guess the, the people who who were for the gradualism theory for the extinction of the dinosaurs and other species, this seems to be their main argument. Are, do they have any other arguments of why potentially the asteroid impact theory is wrong? I hear the question kind of the, the other way around. I see there's more and more evidence that the asteroid theory is, is more, being more favored um, mm. versus, versus the volcano theory. So, I mean, at the same time, there was like major volcanism in India, which at the time, because the plate constellation was different, would have been just the opposite end of the of the world. And um, and there have been even um, models that the meteorite impact actually might have triggered an eruption, a volcanic eruption at the other side because you have like earthquake waves that, that travel around the earth and then concentrate at that point, right? And then they, they, they travel back again. Um, but I think it's, that would be more gradual. And, and very recently I, I saw a paper where they actually found that from deep ocean sediments, and so they can, they can look at deep ocean sediments, can, can look at fossils there, can do like analysis of, oxygen isotopes and whatnot. And they showed that the temperature actually was was lower just prior to the extinction event than it should be if there was a lot of volcanism happening that was putting a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. However, that the temperature was higher after the after the impact. So so the the that paper basically argues that well the volcanism didn't cause the extinction, but it then didn't help with the recovery of life. Right. A lot of times I think it's a mix of both. Like it doesn't have to be either or. Like things yeah. kind of conspire together to get these these massively ecologically traumatic events in, in Earth's and, history. And I think that's that's the big issue that it will probably never be possible to say it was just one one cause because probably the ecosystem already was stressed. There were some other things. However, there has been another study also just within the last few months, and they talk about 
the wildfires that would have been triggered by the meteorite impact from these tectites and um, that that put a lot of soot into the atmosphere. And so that soot won't um, heat the, the planet, but it will cause over a year of very diminished sunlight reaching the surface. And, and that was, would completely derail the food web because now you have your primary producers, so the, the algae in the oceans, the, the plants on, on the continents, um, couldn't grow. And, and that wouldn't be good for anything that, that depends on that. Mm-hmm. So, so I think there has been like with that Tannis site and with that paper on the suit and the third paper, they all seem to point that it's more of the impact, probably not just the impact, but that really the impact, without the impact, we wouldn't have had a mass extinction. Mm, okay. This particular paper is going to be a while before it's totally digested by the scientific community. Uh, as, as, as one person said, there's no one expert that, that is an expert in all of these different components in these fields. And, and they said it'll take, it'll take a long time before it's completely accepted, but it, it looks really interesting and it looks cool. Um, have you, have you been a part of any, uh, like kind of digs type of thing or any, any paleontology type things. I know you do geophysics, you do GPR, ground penetrating radar, and I know you do it with archaeology type stuff. Yeah. I, when I was an undergrad, I actually had a summer job one year working at the Messel Paleontological Lagerstätte near, near Darmstadt, not far from Frankfurt in Germany, which is now a World Heritage Site. It's an EOC in Lagerstätte, so has very interesting mammal fossils there like um and that that was really cool that summer at the time um so this was an old quarry for um oil shale that they that they had mined there and the government at the time they wanted to make it into a um dump site for um for waste and for like kind of special waste because of the shale the shale is very waterproof so it would be like a very very safe site and the paleontologist, so I was working with the Hessisches Landesmuseum Darmstadt at the time. And then there's the very famous Senckenberg Museum. So both museums were, were working there. And the, the scientists were just trying to get out as much material as they could before it became a, a, a waste site. Um, but luckily, um, it has been changed. And now it's like a world heritage site because it's it's so cool so um so i worked at at that actually there excavating i remember finding a little bat (laughs) like uh yeah it was really cool like so you you open the slate right and there was like uh, the bat i was very excited (laughs) about that wow have you do you know what what species it was or was there any like specific markings or special bat Sorry, I don't know that. I just remember that it was a bat. Like we found a lot of, because it also was like a lake deposit, right? So mostly we found mm-hmm. um, fish. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was like for six weeks, the group that was there prior to mine, they actually found a crocodile. Oh, wow. So our group didn't find anything like big and special, but it was still very, very cool. 
that's very cute mm. well you know since since you're working with you know like reconstructing i mean you use gpr and geophysics in archaeology so you're mm -hmm. kind of working in the field of, of reconstructing our, our geologic history and one of the things that i found really interesting in like an early sedimentology class is i i always heard the prof say that the geologic time record is more gap than record mm -hmm. so then how how do earth scientists that that reconstruct earth's history actually like reconcile that fact and 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 work around it to develop the history of the earth? That's a really good question. And um, I'm not sure I can answer that kind of satisfactory for you. But for okay, one thing, ambitious. I think these Lagerstätten play a big role in that. So if you have like a site like Tanis, where you have like a really good record, um, really varied record and really careful record, that plays a, a huge part, um, like in terms of paleontology, where you don't just have like bones preserved, but where you have soft parts preserved, where you ideally can recreate the whole ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. And and yeah, like the sedimentary record, like a sedimentary bed might be actually a catastrophic event, right? It might be like an underwater landslide that that happened within a few hours. And then you have like for hundreds of years, not much happening. So um, that's that's a trick part. And I think it's a, it's a matter of finding enough sites to get enough evidence to build it all together. And our understanding, I think, is getting also more sophisticated and our tools are becoming more sophisticated that um, we now don't just like describe the rocks, but we also look at like the chemical evidence and and recognize different mm, that's true. um like get different information that way and it it all just builds and that, that's why it's important that we combine field work with lab work and modeling to quantify this and to to get a better understanding get a just get a finer image it probably helps just like in the information age to be able to share all of these all of these sites all of these uh, digs across the world so that you know like right. one part of the world can answer this question and the other part of the world has an answer mm -hmm. to another question and you just build like this progressive record of the entire world thanks to little pieces and puzzles found all over it right and and the communication between scientists is really crucial i think there's for example a lot of good science that has been done in the soviet union but because it's published in Russian in some Russian journal, we don't know much about it in the in the West, right? And um mm. and so so I think that's yeah, it's the the science is really collaboration of people. Translators, there's a hot job market. <laughs> so we've got two more questions for you. Mm. Uh I would like to know if there was one scientific mystery that really really puzzled you that you could have the answer to overnight what what mystery would you do you think that you'd like to to have solved for you could be in earth sciences or any other field as an earth scientist i will answer this a little bit in a roundabout way because i say well in general we are curious about our origin as humans how our planets works and also the impact that we are having I think for me, though, I'm really curious about ethical issues. And so, for example, how can we 
extract resources in a sustainable way? How can we distribute the wealth that we're getting from nature in more equitable ways? How can we improve the relationship with, especially in Canada, with indigenous people on whose lands we work? And, and also, how can we increase the diversity within the geosciences in terms of gender, in terms of minorities? So probably these are not, it's not the answer that you're expecting because it's not really a, a scientific mystery. And, it's a mystery um, nonetheless. <laughs> it's, it's a deep, deep <laughs> complex thing that has huge impacts, right? And probably my interest in disasters also stems a little bit from that because I think disasters are also um, hit the marginalized and disadvantaged people within our societies the hardest. And, and if we look at something like the KP event, we, we talk about the dinosaurs and we realize that, well, there was a break before that time we had dinosaurs. And after that time, we don't find dinosaurs. Um, and the, the life that survived was, was different. So, so I think there's kind of a bit of a, of a relationship to that, kind of what the, the, the questions that we ask, answer or try to answer in science um, I think there's also like implications for, for society here. Right. The dinosaurs didn't see the asteroid coming, but what's our excuse? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and what would we do if we, if we knew, like, I mean, a lot of what we call natural disasters are totally man-made because we know that there's tornadoes coming. We know that there's earthquakes. We even know where the areas for earthquakes are. We know, we know about um, tsunamis, but do we really prepare for it? Because these things happen, and um, like every time a hurricane makes landfall, it's like a big disaster, and we then act after the fact, but we don't really prepare for it to make our societies better. And um, well, now we live in a pandemic, right? We didn't expect that either, although there have been people that have talked about it, but no one was, was listening to them. And now we're trying to make the best of it. Yeah, maybe we should think about diverting some of the funds that go towards like military, things like that, towards thinking about natural disasters, health crises like this, so that we can prevent them before they happen. Actually, you might also, the next question you might also have to answer in a roundabout way, because I think we, you said that you wanted to be a uh, geologist or an, or an earth scientist ever since you were a kid. But was there ever a moment in your life where you were like, Mm, you were kind of, you know, tempted by something else. I don't know, uh, being a ventriloquist or something. No, it was lines. music. <laughs> I, I really music. wanted to become a musician, specifically an organist. Mm, when wow. When I was a teenager, I, I, and I still, I love the organ, but I don't play it anymore. Mm. But um, uh, That's not a piece of equipment or an instrument you can really fit in a house, can you? That's the problem. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> But, but as a student, I mean, as an undergrad student, I had a position as an assistant organist at a church in Munich. Mm. And then when I was a grad student, I also did a lot of like um, gigs, like organists that were traveling or were on holidays and I could fill in for them. But then once I finished as a grad student and started like real jobs, I didn't have time for that. And as you said, it's, it's difficult to get access to it. So that's something that once I retired in like 15 years or something like that, um, I might try to go back to. You should really, I mean, there's, there's an organ at Heart House 
uh, at the University of Toronto campus. You should do at a, 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 a small concert there. At Hart House, I didn't know yeah. that they have an organ. You should do a concert there. I think they do. I sometimes hear them practicing okay. or someone doing yeah. it. Well, th yeah, thanks for thanks for answering our, yeah, our little surprise so question there. <laughs> yeah, well, you're uh, welcome. This is fun. I know they were, they were unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dean, I'm gonna I'm gonna hand uh, I'm gonna hand it off to you if you want to lead us with the episode end quote. All right. This week's quote is I think goes quite fittingly with this paper. Extinction is the rule. Survival is the exception. And that was by Carl Sagan. Thank you, Dean. Yes, that was lovely. <laughs> Dean's a big fan of Carl I know, Sagan. I know. It's all, you all saw it coming, I know. <laughs> I won't, won't only draw from Sagan in our podcast, I promise. There are plenty of other scientists, Earth and planetary scientists, who I can draw from, but I couldn't help. This was so perfect for this paper. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, well, yeah, thank you so much, Charlie, for, for being with us on this on this podcast. We definitely learned a lot. And thank you. And good luck with the other podcasts. Thank you to our listeners. Uh, we hope you tune in next week for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university. 